watering and planting. Otherwise, your grass will turn brown and the flowers will die. That's the case for success. There's no retreating for those who want to create it and keep it. it. Look, it's a myth to believe that the successful get to kick back and stop making the very efforts that brought them their fulfillment in the first place. Always keep the four actions. Doing nothing, retreating, taking an average amount of action, and taking massive action. Keep them in mind. The 10x rule means you're going to create success in quantities great enough that you're constantly in total control. The wannabes and people who get close are the ones who quit. They quit adding wood and they back off. Massive action is designed to move you past your peers, past the wannabes, and off the treadmill. The best way to quit worrying about your competition, the best way to, to eliminate uncertainty is to build a fire so large and so hot that everyone in the world, even your competition, comes to sit by your fire for warmth. Keep in mind, most competition is created by those who are unwilling to operate at the higher levels of action, those who are merely imitating the efforts of others. There can never be enough wood on your fire. You can never take too much action or accumulate too much success. There is no such thing as being talked or written about excessively, being covered too frequently, or receiving too much authority, or working too much. These are simply claims that mediocre people make in order to justify their own decision to be happy with the status quo. How can you ever take too much action when you have an endless ability to create new action? Look at the big players on this planet. None of them, none of them ever run out of energy, effort, people, ideas, or resources. They enjoy the gifts of abundance because they create abundance in their enterprises. So instead of resenting these people, hating them, man, admire and emulate them. If you do, you'll find that the more you commit to new actions, the more creative you will become. It is though your imagination opens up new possibilities pour out from new commitments. It is not even necessarily the creativity that is so brilliant, but the ability to take massive action that prompts the brilliance. I recently met with a very, very high-profile PR firm in Los Angeles whose members suggested in this meeting that I might possibly or should be concerned with the concept of overexposure, something I thought was an extremely strange concept. The notion of overexposure, I'm sure you've heard this, the idea that you can see or hear about someone too much or about a product too much, this is based on a concept that a person doesn't continue to generate new ideas and new products. The underlying belief is that an overexposed person or an overexposed product will somehow lose its value. But consider the following. Coca-Cola is known by almost everyone on planet Earth. You can find Coca-Cola's products in almost every store, bar, airplane, and hotel in the world. Is it overexposed? Should it hide its products? Should the company hold back in fear that Coca-Cola will lose its value because too many people are hearing about it, it's too easy to get, or maybe too many people are using it? This seems to be fairly ridiculous to me. And there are countless other examples of products and companies that prove this point. Microsoft, Starbucks, McDonald's, Wells Fargo, Google, Fox TV, Marlboro, Walgreens, Exxon, Apple, Toyota, even some athletic and celebrity personalities. Overexposure for most of you is not the problem. Obscurity is the problem. Remember, if you don't know me, then it doesn't matter how good my product is or how low my price is. 
Remember, if you don't know or know about me, then it doesn't matter how good my product is or how much it will do for you or how low the price is. And even if overexposure was a true problem, which is not, look, I'd still rather be overexposed than face obscurity. The sad but true fact is that most people don't even get in the neighborhood of overexposure. Most people never get inspired enough to build a bonfire so hot that others come to it. They're either miseducated, socially programmed to settle for less, or fear that their actions will somehow get them out of control. I promise you, this will not happen to you. You must build your fire so big and so hot that you not only burn the house down, at least willing to burn the house down, but you incinerate everything in your path. Go all the way. Go all in and then keep going all in until your fire burns so hot that people stand around your fire in admiration of your ability to take action. Don't worry about the resistance you're afraid you'll face from either the market or your competitors. They'll get out of your way. Once they see, you're a force to be reckoned with. Exercise. What is the fire that you've always wanted to start and need to add wood to? What three things could you do to add wood to that fire today? Who can you get support from in order to continue stoking your fire? Chapter 16. Fear is the Great Indicator. Sooner or later, you will experience fear when you start taking new actions at new levels. In fact, if you aren't, then you're probably not doing enough of the right things. Fear isn't bad or something to be avoided. Conversely, it's something you want to seek and then to embrace. Fear is actually a sign that you're doing what is needed to move in the right direction. Look, an absence of concerns should signal that you are only doing that which you're comfortable with. And that will only get you more of what you have right now. As strange as it may sound, you want to be scared until you have to push yourself to new levels to experience new fears again. In fact, the only thing that scares me is a complete lack of fear. What is fear anyway? I mean, really, does it even exist? Is it real? I know it feels real when you're experiencing it, but admit it, most of the time, what you fear doesn't even occur. It's been said that fear stands for false events appearing real, which aptly implies that most of what you're afraid of doesn't even come to pass. Fear, for the most part, is provoked by emotions, not rational thinking. And in my humble estimation, emotions are wildly overrated and the scapegoat many people use for their failure to act. But regardless of whether you agree with my opinion on emotions you must reframe your understanding of this one emotion called fear and use fear as a reason to move forward rather than as an excuse to stop or retreat. Use this frequently avoided feeling as a green light, this thing called fear. Use it as a green light to signal you of what you should do. Chances are that when you were a child, you found fear in irrational things, the boogeyman under the bed, for example. It was an indicator to check your closet and the dark corners of your room to see what was lurking. But as all children eventually find, the boogeyman does not exist anywhere except in the child's mind. Adults have their own boogeyman, the unknown, rejection, failure, fear of success, and on and on. And these boogeymen should be a sign to take action as well. For example, if you're afraid to call a client, 
then it's that sign that you should call that client. Fear of speaking with the boss is an indication you should march into his office and ask for a moment of his time. Fear of requesting the client's business means that you must ask for the client's business and then keep asking. The 10x rule compels you, forces you to separate yourself from everyone else in the market. And you do that by, as I emphasized earlier, doing what others refuse to do. Remember, only actions. Only in this way will you distinguish yourself and dominate your sector. Everyone, everyone experiences fear on some level. And because the marketplace is composed of other people experiencing fear, interacting with both products and one another, look, the market will face fear in the same way that you and your peers do. But rather than seeing fear as a sign to run, as most other people in the market will, it must become your indicator to move, to go forward. Now, I handled this dilemma myself by omitting time from the equation, since time actually fuels fear. It drives fear. The more time you devote to the object of your apprehension, the stronger the fear becomes. So what I do is I starve my fear of its favorite food, time, by removing time from its menu. For example, let's say that John needs to make a call to a client, a task that immediately causes him to feel anxiety. Rather than picking up the phone and making the call immediately, John goes and gets a cup of coffee and thinks about what he's going to say or do. His lengthy contemplation only causes the fear to grow as he imagines all the ways the call could go badly and then all the potentially terrible things that might happen. If confronted, he's likely to claim that he needs to prepare before he makes the call, but preparation is merely an excuse for those who haven't been trained properly and who use it as a reason to justify their last-minute reluctance. You know what John needs to do is John needs to take a deep breath, pick up the phone, and make the call. Last-minute preparation is just another way to feed fear that will only get stronger as time is added. Nothing happens without action. Fear doesn't just tell you what to do. It also tells you when to do it. Ask yourself, what time is it at any point in the day? And the answer is always the same. The time is now. The time is always now, and when you experience fear, it's a sign that the best time to take action is at that very moment. Most people will never follow through with their goals when enough time has passed from the inception of their idea to actually doing something about that idea. However, if you remove time, when you remove time from that process, you'll be ready to fire. There's simply no other choice than to act. There's no need to prepare. It's too late at that moment once you've gotten this far. Now, the only thing that will make a difference in that moment of fear is action. Everyone has had the experience of failing to do something they wanted to do. Perhaps by the time you got yourself ready to do something, someone else had taken action already. And now, that's what you're regretting. Failure comes in many forms. It occurs whether you act or you don't act. Regardless of the outcome, I would say it's far preferable to fail while doing something than to fail by over-preparing while someone else walks up and scoops up your dreams. This scenario occurs in business every day. People give their fears much more time than they deserve. They feed it with time. They wait to make the personal visit. They wait to make the phone call. They wait to write the email or present their proposal because they're afraid of the outcome. Look, countless individuals share the same excuses for why it is not a good time to take action. The client's leaving town. The client just got back in town. It's the end of the month. It's the beginning of the month. The client's been in meetings all day. They're about to go into a meeting. They just bought something. 
They don't have the budget. They're cutting back. Business is bad. There's been a change in management or staff. I don't want to bug them. They never return my phone calls anyway. No one else can sell them. They're unrealistic. I don't know what to say. I'm not ready yet. I just called them yesterday and on and on. Look, all the excuses in the world will not change one simple fact. That fear is a sign to do whatever it is you fear and do it quickly. My wife tells me all the time, you seem fearless. How do you do that? I want to be fearless like you. The truth is actually quite the contrary. I am scared most of the time. However, I refuse to feed fear with time and allow it to get stronger on me. I opt instead to get things done quickly as fast as possible. I've learned that it's simply better for me to take the quick approach, even if I'm unprepared. You will experience the same thing when you're finally able to take the plunge, man. Just push through the fear. In fact, you'll be amazed how much stronger you become over time and how much more confident you are to do new things. Taking massive action quickly and repeatedly will ensure that you appear fearless in the marketplace. The person who takes action on whatever he or she fears the most will be the person who advances his or her cause the most. Let the rest of the marketplace submit to anxiety and prepare unnecessarily for false events appearing real. Look, you got a job to do. Remember, fear is one of the most disabling emotions a human being can experience. It immobilizes people, and often it ultimately prevents them from going for their goals and their dreams. Everyone fears something in life. However, it's what each of us do with that fear that distinguishes us from the others. When you allow fear to set you back, you lose energy. You lose momentum and you lose confidence and your fears only grow. Have you ever watched some kind of performer eat fire? It appears that the trick here is to completely exhaust the oxygen that the fire requires for life. When the fire eater pulls away too early, the oxygen refuels the fire, which will then, of course, burn the fire eater. The same is true with fear. If you back off from it, even the slightest bit, If you give it even the slightest bit of oxygen that it needs to stay alive, it will get bigger. So commit yourself entirely. Remove time from the equation, and you will snuff out your fears and be able to take more action. Eat your fears. Don't feed them by backing off or giving them time to grow. Eat them. Learn to look for them and use fear so that you know exactly what you need to do to overcome them and then advance your life. Every successful person I know of has used fear as an indicator to determine which actions will provide them with the greatest return. I use fear in my own life every chance I get to remain aware that I am growing and expanding myself. Look, if you're not experiencing fear, you're not taking new action and you're not growing. It's as simple as that. It does not take money or luck to create a great life. It requires the ability to move past your fears with speed and power. Fear, like fire, is something from which you should never pull away. Rather, it should be something you use to fuel the actions of your life. Exercise. What are your three biggest fears? Number two, whom do you fear contacting who could help you or improve your business? And number three, what did you learn about fear in this chapter? Chapter 17, The Myth of Time Management. I should begin this chapter by admitting that I do not consider myself a great manager by any means. Neither have I been a great planner. 
In fact, I've never even written a business plan in my life for any of my businesses. However, I've always been able to effectively manage myself well enough to build multiple companies from scratch that are profitable. Time management has never been something I considered valuable for myself, even though I do spend time on those things that I think are most valuable. I often receive questions about time management and balance in my seminars. I have found throughout my career that the people who are most concerned with time management and balance in their lives are the very same people who believe in notions of shortages that we discussed in the earlier chapters. Most don't even know how much time is available to them or what tasks are most necessary to accomplish in the time they have. Look, if you don't know how much time you have or need, then how on earth can you expect to manage time and balance it? The first thing you must do is to make success your duty by setting distinct and definitive priorities. I can't do this for you. Of course, everyone's priorities are different. However, if success is a main concern for you, then I would suggest that you spend most of your time doing those things that will create success. Of course, I don't know what success means in your life. It could involve a variety of people and things, finances, family, happiness, spirituality, physical or emotional well-being, or if you're like me, it would include all of them. And remember, it can be all of them for you. I personally am not interested in balance in my life. I am interested in abundance in every area. I don't think I should have to sacrifice one in favor of another. Look, successful people think in terms of all, whereas unsuccessful tend to place limits on themselves and think in terms of one or the other. They may believe that if I'm rich, I can't be happy. Or if I thrive in my career, then I won't have time to be a good father, a good husband, or a spiritual person. In fact, it's interesting to me to notice that the people who put limits on them the most about what is available to them are also the most inclined to talk about balance. However, this is a flawed manner of thinking that neither time management nor balance will resolve. Look, as far as I'm concerned, it's pointless for people to worry about time management and balance. The question they should be asking is, how can I have it all in abundance? Successful people have attained the things they desire in quantity so great that no one can take them away from them. And how can a person consider him or herself successful if he or she isn't happy? What happiness is there in being unable to pay the bills or provide for your family or worry about your future? The moment you achieve one goal you've set for yourself, then it's time to establish a new target. Quit thinking in terms of either or and start thinking in terms of all and everything. That's right. Quit thinking in terms of either or and start thinking in terms of all and everything. As I was writing this, a client sent me a message asking, Man, do you ever rest? I jokingly wrote him back seconds later. Never. I do, of course, like every other human being. However, I know how much time is available to me. I know what my priorities are, and I know it is my duty, my obligation, and my responsibility to go after them in the time I have. I challenge you. I challenge you to keep track of how you're first spending your time, your available time, and maybe journal it. Most people have no clue what they even do with their time, but then complain that they don't have enough time. Did you know that every single person has 168 hours in a week? And based on a typical 40-hour work week, typical, the average, average, U.S. employee only works 37 and a half hours of the 168 hours available with 30 minutes for lunch each day. And it's pretty unlikely that most people actually even work the average 37 and a half hours. In fact, the average individual spends 22.3% of his or her available time at work.
33.3% asleep, and 166 in front of a TV or online. And those comparisons assume that the person spends 100% of his or her time at work actually working. Then these very same people worry about balance and time management. But an imbalance is always going to occur when you don't do enough with the time you have. While most people claim to value time, many, most, in fact, don't seem to know very much about time. Like, who creates time? Do you create your own time or does someone else do that for you? What can you do to create more time? What does the expression, time is money, mean? How do you treat time to make sure your time is money? What is the most important thing that you should do with your time? See, all these questions are worthy of your consideration and require your attention in order for you to maximize time. Now, let's assume that you have 75 years to live in this lifetime. That's approximately 657,000 hours or 39,420,000 minutes. Take any given day of the week. You have an average of 3,900 Mondays, Tuesdays, Wednesdays, Thursdays, Fridays, Saturdays, etc. Now, here's the scary part of it. If you're 37 years old as you listen to this, then did you know you only have 1,950 Wednesdays left? What if you only had $1,950 left in your bank? Would you watch it slip away or would you do whatever you could to increase it? I believe that I can do more with 1,950 weeks than most people will ever do. The only way to increase time is to get more done in the time you have. Look, if I could get 15 phone calls done in 15 minutes and you get 15 phone calls done in one hour, then I've essentially created 45 minutes for myself. In this way, the 10x rule makes it possible to multiply time. That's right. The 10x rule makes it possible to actually multiply and control time. If I hire someone and pay that person $15 an hour to make 15 calls every 15 minutes, then I duplicated my efforts and my time then becomes money. To really understand, manage, maximize, and squeeze every opportunity out of the time you have, you have to fully understand and appreciate how much time you have available. You must first take control of your time, not allow others to do so. If you listen to people discuss the topic of time, especially in regards to the amount they have at work, you'll probably hear a lot of complaining. People act as though work is something to get through, yet in reality, they spend very little of their time at work. Most people only work enough to make it feel like work, whereas successful people work at a pace that gets such satisfying results that work is a reward. Truly successful people don't even call it work. For them, it's a passion, a hobby, something they want to do. Why? Because they do it enough to win. An easy way to achieve balance is to simply work harder while you're at the office. This won't just leave you with more time. It will allow you to experience the rewards of your job and make it feel less like work and more like success. Try to take this approach. Be grateful to go to work and see how much you can get done in the time you have. Make it a race, a challenge. Make it fun. The first thing you do when managing time and seeking balance is to decide what is important for you. In which areas do you want to achieve success and in what quantities? Write down those things in order of importance. Then determine the total amount of time you have available and decide where you're going to allot time to each of these endeavors. Another thing to do is log how you're spending your time daily. And I mean every single second. This will allow you to see all the ways in which you are wasting time, those little bad habits and those activities that in no way can contribute to your success. 
Any action that is not adding wood to your fire should be considered wasteful. Think Xbox, online poker, watching television, napping, drinking, taking smoking breaks. The potential list is endless. Brutal, isn't it? Yes, it is. But look, if you don't manage your time, I promise you that you'll waste your time. Of course, things will change throughout the course of your life and in your career. You'll get older. You achieve and then generate new goals. Different things and people will enter your world. All these changes require that you continue to modify your priorities. For example, I listened for years to parents who told me I didn't understand how to balance work with family because I didn't have children of my own. Well, I recently had my first child, most assuredly an event that demands more of my time, and was able to experience this for myself. What I found was not a problem with balance or work, but rather a solution based on priorities. My daughter merely gave me another reason to create success, not an excuse to avoid working more. She is sheer motivation for me to do well because now I'm doing it for her as well as for myself. Look, you can't blame your family for keeping you from creating the success you deserve. They should be the reason you want to succeed at a bigger level. It might seem difficult, but there are always ways to make things work. Get yourself and your family members on a schedule that allows you to do those things that are a priority for you and them. For example, my solution when I had my daughter was to add one hour to each of my days in order to spend time with my daughter. My wife and I met and we created a schedule that will allow me to have time with my daughter and my wife and not negatively impact the work schedule, the production schedule that provides for our financial success. The first thing my wife and I did was build our daughter's sleep schedule around our priorities. We agreed that I would get up one hour earlier each day and take my daughter on an outing, just me and her. This would ensure that I would have quality time when I'm home with my daughter before I go to the office and before I become consumed by the day's events. It also would allow my wife some extra time to sleep in. Now, I've been doing this with my daughter since she was about six months old, and it works beautifully. Each morning, I take my daughter to the grocery store with me and introduce her to all the people who work there at the grocery store. When I get back from our outing, the rest of the day is mine to produce in the business world uninterrupted. Because I get my daughter up so early, we are then in a position to put her to bed before 7 p.m. each night. Then my wife and I are able to spend quality time at the end of the day, not interrupted by a young child. We understand that this system will continue to change as my daughter grows older and that alterations will have to be made in it. However, the point is that we're controlling our time rather than just haphazardly trying to manage time. Our decision to set priorities and commit to a solution lets us be the boss, owners, the controllers of our own time. The busier you become in life, the more you have to manage, control, and prioritize. Although I certainly don't have this to some scientific formula that will magically make this easier, I can tell you one thing. If you start with a commitment to success and then agree to control time, you will create an agenda that will accommodate how you use time. You have to decide first how you're going to use your time. You must command, control, and squeeze every second of it in order to increase your footprint and dominate the marketplace. Get everyone necessary, your family, your colleagues, your associates, employees, to recognize and agree upon those priorities which are most important to you. 
If you don't do this, you will have people with different agendas pulling you in all sorts of directions. My schedule works for me because everyone in my life, from my wife to the people who work with me, know what is most important to me and understands how I value time. This allows us to handle everything else that comes our way. In our culture, we're frequently encouraged to slow down, relax, take it easy, find balance, and just be happy with where we are and then with what we have. Although this can sound great in theory, it can be very difficult for people who abandon every decision to ever be in control of their lives. Look, most people can't simply relax and take it easy since they never do enough to free themselves of the meager existence that comes as a result of mediocre actions. Work should provide a purpose, a mission, and a sense of accomplishment. These things are vital to every single person's mental, emotional, and physical well-being. People who promote the New Age esoteric advice to slow it down, take it easy, are encouraging a mindset that isn't doing anyone any good. Consider the types of traits this thinking has created in people. Laziness, procrastination, a lack of urgency, sloth, tendency to blame others, irresponsibility, entitlement, excuses, and the expectation that it's up to someone else to solve our problems. Wake up. No one's going to save you. No one is going to take care of your family or your retirement. No one is going to make things work out for you. The only way to do so is to utilize every moment of every day at 10x levels. Only this will ensure that you accomplish your goals and your dreams. Happiness, security, confidence, and fulfillment come from utilizing your gifts and energy to achieve whatever you've decided is success for you. And it requires every bit of your time which is yours and only yours to control. Exercise. How much time are you at work each day? Second part of this. What percentage of the time that you're at work does that represent of your total day? How much time do you spend on wasteful activities? TV, smoking, drinking, sleeping, oversleeping, getting coffee, having lunches, are meetings with no business opportunity. What are some of your time wasters? What has this chapter taught you about time? Chapter 18, criticism is a sign of success. Although getting criticized is certainly not the best feeling in the world, I have great news. Receiving criticism is a surefire sign that you're well on your way to success. Criticism is not something you want to avoid. Rather, it's what you must expect to come your way once you start hitting it big. Criticism is defined as the judgment of the merits and faults of the work or actions of one individual by another. Although criticizing doesn't necessarily mean to imply fault, the word is often taken to mean prejudice or disapproval. The dictionary, however, fails to include the following helpful bits of information. When you start taking the right amounts of action and therefore creating the right amounts of success for you, criticism is often not far behind. Of course, most people don't like being criticized. However, I have found that it comes as a natural result of getting attention. This may be why some people avoid attention in the first place, as an attempt to then dodge judgment or criticism. However, look, there's no way to achieve serious levels of success without getting attention. Yes, people will eye you and make it clear that they disapprove of what you're doing. 
Let's face it, no matter what choices you make in life, someone is going to criticize you somewhere along the way. Wouldn't you rather receive it from people who are jealous of your success than from your family or your boss or bill collectors for not taking enough action and creating enough success? Look, when you start taking enough action, it won't be long before you're judged by people who aren't taking enough action. If you're generating substantial success, people will start to pay attention to you. Some will admire you. Some will want to learn from you, but unfortunately, most will envy you and criticize you. These are the people whose excuses for not doing enough will morph into reasons why what you are doing is actually wrong. You need to expect and anticipate criticism as one of the signs of success. It will come when you start cranking at these 10x levels, often before your accomplishment is even evident. Beware. This criticism can come in many forms. It may first show up as advice from others. Why are you spending so much energy on that one client? You know, he never buys anything. Or you might hear, you know, you should really enjoy life more. It's not all work, you know. These are the kinds of things that people start to say to you to make themselves feel better because your abundance of activity highlights their deficiency of activity. Remember, success is not a popularity contest. It is your duty, your obligation, and your responsibility. A buddy of mine who's in the fence business in Louisiana once admitted to me, Grant, I don't want attention. The minute I get attention, the competitors start coming after me. I want to fly under the radar so no one knows what I'm doing. Now, although that's certainly one way to approach your success, you can't fly under the radar for too long and expect to ever make it to the top. Laying low in order to avoid attention and consequently criticism probably means that you're holding yourself back to some degree. Your fear of being attacked is keeping you from going for it completely. However, once the naysayers realize and acknowledge that you aren't going away and that your success is something they should imitate, not judge, they will give up and find someone else to criticize. Weak and overwhelmed individuals respond to others' success by attacking it with criticism. The moment you elect to dominate or acquire territory, you run the risk of becoming a target for these people. You see this in politics constantly. When neither side has any real solution, they merely distract all of us by just criticizing and laying into one another. It doesn't do anyone any good. Criticism of any individual or group should be a signal to the recipient that the person flinging mud is threatened by the entity he or she is actually belittling. People who habitually disparage others with criticism like this usually don't have a solution to their own situation except to degrade another. The only way to handle criticism is to foresee it as an element of your success formula. Much like fear, it's a sign that you're making the right moves in the right volumes, getting enough attention, and making a big enough splash. One of my clients recently called my company to complain that my staff was following up with him too aggressively. I called to ask him what the problem was. After listening to him malign my employees for doing what was essentially their job, I said to John, knock it off. These people are simply doing what they know is right because they know we can help you. The fact that you haven't made a decision to move forward and haven't pulled the trigger is what should be criticized here. But I will refrain from doing so because it won't do either of us any good. Now let's stop the negativity and do something positive to move your company forward. 
I then rewarded my staff for aggressively following up with my client. Receiving complaints about too much follow-up is an indication that my staff is moving in the right direction, not the wrong one. I refused to allow the client's protest to stop us and supported my staff in their efforts. We all understand at my office that criticism is part of the success cycle. I won't apologize for any employee of mine who is seeking success. And in case you're wondering, we did close the deal. This very same client now tells people with admiration and praise that those guys follow up like maniacs. When I finished college, I got a full-time sales job rather than taking a position in the area in which I had received my degree. Within a couple of years, my sales results had taken me to the very top 1% of all the salespeople in that industry and way ahead of the people with whom I worked directly. And if you think they didn't criticize me, well, think again. Of course they did. They made jokes about me, poked fun at me, tried to distract me, and even tried to convince me to cease the very actions that had gotten me to where I was. That's what lower performers do. That's what average performers do. They make others wrong for doing what is necessary in order to make themselves feel okay with what they're doing. The highest performers, the winners, respond by studying successful people and duplicating how successful people got successful. They train themselves to reach the top performer level. Because lower performers are not willing to step up and take responsibility to increase their production, they can only seek out to tear down those who are performing at the higher levels. When my book, If You're Not First, You're Last, hit the New York Times bestseller list, some of my supposed competition immediately began criticizing me. One person called the book's title arrogant. Another asked, who does Cardone think he is? Yet another suggested that I was getting too big for my own good, whatever the hell that means. One person even called to tell me to get a new editor because he claimed that the grammar was wrong. Did I pay attention to any of these comments? Not for a second. I had a New York Times bestseller. From what I can tell, criticism precedes admiration, and like it or not, goes hand-in-hand with success. First comes the criticism, then the admiration, and then the success. So keep pouring on the success, and sooner or later, the very same people who are putting you down will be admiring you for what you have done. Those who have initially judged your actions will later be singing your praises. Just as long as you take the criticism as a sign of your growing success and keep the accelerator on your actions at 10x levels. After all, what better way to retaliate against criticism than to keep succeeding? Exercise. What have you learned about criticism now? Two, what criticism would you most like to hear from others? Three, give three examples of when you've seen people go from criticizing others to then admiring them. Chapter 19, customer satisfaction is the wrong target. The topic of criticism provides an appropriate segue into a discussion about what I believe to be the overused and abused concept of customer satisfaction. One of the first protests I hear from people to whom I promote the idea of 10x actions is their concern that customer satisfaction will somehow be damaged. They worry that if they and their company push too much or become overly aggressive, they'll somehow hurt their brand's reputation in the marketplace. Although I suppose that's possible, it's much more likely due to the overabundance of products and organizations available today that no one will even know about you or your company or notice your brand in the first place. 
The board of trustees of a national cable channel I was working with became concerned that a new show that the executives were very excited about did not fit the network's brand. I told them, if you don't start bringing TV to people's homes that is current and relevant and that people have to tune into, you ain't going to have a brand to defend. When you fail to find supporters, establish customers, secure investors, and close the deal because you fail to do whatever it takes to get the job done, then you hide under the excuse of protecting your brand and customer satisfaction. You just as soon have a shovel in your hand and dig your own grave. Customer service is the wrong target. Increasing customers is the right target. This doesn't mean customer satisfaction isn't important. Everyone knows that customers have to be satisfied and happy in order for them to return and give a positive word of mouth to others. If your service or product or investment isn't built on satisfaction, you're a criminal. And this book will only land you in jail sooner or later. Make your primary focus commanding attention and generating new customers before you worry about making them happy. Let me explain simply. Customer satisfaction doesn't concern me and my company very much. Why? Because I know we over-deliver to our clients and provide customer service that is well beyond satisfactory. We over-deliver to every client, and we never say no until we absolutely have to. We don't even talk about customer satisfaction in my office. We do talk a lot about how to get more customers because attracting customers to our program is the only way to increase customer satisfaction in the first place. Look, you get it? Increasing customer satisfaction is impossible without increasing customers. Whether someone signs up for our free tip of the week or buys a book for $30 or an audio program for $500 or gets involved in our long-term training contracts you know, or, or, or pays our company millions of dollars to customize a training program, either way, I'm over-delivering. I'm going to over-deliver what's expected. I only concern myself with getting more customers. Then I over-deliver to my clients always. I am most worried about non-customer satisfaction, that is, the people who are dissatisfied because they don't have my product and may not even know they're unhappy. I know that the only dissatisfied clients that we can have are those who don't have my products or who have them and are not using them correctly or people that don't know me. We talk about how getting our clients to increase their usage in our material, our books, our programs, our systems, and our processes is the only way to increase customer satisfaction. Not getting a client or having a client use your products incorrectly or bigger outpoints than most of the ways that customer satisfaction is thought of. A customer getting the package a day late is an issue and should be handled. But look, the client who never buys your product suggests you have a real serious customer satisfaction problem because you never made the person a customer in the first place. The first problem you can easily fix. The second one will kill you. I seek out clients who are qualified to do business with us. I then attend to that individual or company until they agree to hire me knowing that until they get my product or service, they can't be satisfied. This isn't a pitch. This is what I believe to be true. The attainment of the customer, customer insistence, is paramount to customer satisfaction. And customer satisfaction cannot exist without a customer. The attainment of the customer is the most important thing to me. Same thing in relationships. First, it's getting the wife. Then it's keeping her happy. Then it's growing the family. Then it's looking at new ways to keep everyone happy. What was most important? Look, getting the wife was paramount to wife satisfaction. 
It's impossible for a company to create success by just focusing on customer satisfaction. I believe that the trend of focusing on customer satisfaction has proven to be a detriment to customer acquisition. Companies become so consumed about their supposed customer satisfaction that many are failing to aggressively acquire and expand their market by getting new customers. Customer service is a business term meant to measure how the products and services that companies supply meet or exceed customer expectations after the purchase. This assessment, customer satisfaction, is supposedly a key differentiator between the brands customers follow loyally and those they abandon entirely. Yet most places that I go into never service me enough before the sale to ever acquire me as a customer in the first place. Executives tout the importance of customer service from their ivory towers, yet they forget to promote the attainment, customer assistance, the attainment of the customer to begin with. Most products don't get my attention so completely that I'm compelled to purchase them without the assistance of the company. Unfortunately, most companies and salespeople never bother to ask the customer to buy when given the opportunity and then fail to follow that opportunity up. Thus, they never make a client. No customer insistence equals no customer satisfaction. We do mystery shopping campaigns like I mentioned earlier for companies and have validated this over and over. The biggest problem with companies today is that they never made a customer in the first place. If you have a subpar offering, a product that doesn't do what you state it will, and that makes people feel like they've been cheated after the purchase, look, the marketplace will dispose of you sooner or later, regardless of your customer satisfaction score. Most people don't fail because they're offering an inferior product or a poor product. Most people fail because they never get enough customers. Does Starbucks offer the very best customer service and coffee available? Hey, I don't know. I do know that the company has made a serious investment in making it easy and convenient for you to buy their coffee. Is Starbucks concerned about people standing in line too long and getting the right coffee and being greeted correctly? Of course. But I assure you, the company is concerned first with the acquirement of the client. Does Google provide the best search engine and the best customer experience and service? Hey, I don't know. Does it look to improve the customer experience? Certainly. But first, it dominates the space so clearly and gets so much attention that it's the first site used. What's my point here? Brands that truly deliver customer satisfaction do not talk about customer service. They focus on customer acquisition. Customer insistence is senior to customer service. Emerging organizations first need people to know about them, then must do everything they can to make them happy. Remember, customer satisfaction cannot exist without a customer first. American corporations have become so obsessed with customer satisfaction that they have lost sight of the first and most vital factor, customer acquisition. Keep the main thing the main thing, as they say here in the South. Customer satisfaction should not be an initiative but something so inherent to an organization that all its attention is focused now on customer acquisition. To garner the attention of a potential customer or market and then fail to capitalize on creating a user of your products and services makes no sense and is the most expensive of mistakes. Yet this is what happens with far too many organizations. Let's say a company successfully gets my attention long enough that I actually consider its products 
But then the company doesn't do enough to actually earn my business and shut me down, making me a customer. Look, not being a customer makes it impossible for that company to make me a satisfied customer. I'm just saying, don't put the cart before the horse. Notice how executives become concerned about customer satisfaction and then start initiatives to conduct customer satisfaction surveys of the individuals who became customers, but completely ignore surveying those who never became a customer but wanted to. This is a huge miss and a great example of an only practice, as I discussed in Chapter 10, that you could use immediately on how to acquire more customers. In addition to surveying those you've acquired, garnering input from those who didn't buy from you would actually disclose much more to your company about true customer satisfaction. Don't you want to find out why you didn't acquire the business? You think you didn't satisfy a customer and therefore never made one? Most companies fail not due to lack of quality of their product, service, or their offering. They fail because they don't take enough strategic actions to acquire the client in the first place. That's why I suggest that customer satisfaction is the wrong target. Because you don't even get the opportunity to satisfy someone who never evolves into a client in the first place. My point here is not to negate customer satisfaction as an acquisition or as an initiative, but to shift your attention back to the acquisition. Also understand, it is impossible to somehow completely prevent customer complaints. There are, of course, measures you can take to improve your product or service. But when dealing with human beings, let's face it, you are going to get complaints and dissatisfaction. It's just that simple. The best you can do is resolve complaints and dissatisfaction when they emerge, and they will, I promise, and treat them as opportunities to be in communication with your clients. What you need is more people interacting with your product or service and your company. Yes, complaints will increase when dealing with human beings, but so will praise. Increase the number of users of your product or service through massive action, not through massive initiatives that cause your people to back off from the acquisition in the first place. I launched my first company under the naive impression that I would work with a handful, quote-unquote, a handful of clients and really, quote-unquote, concentrate my attention on them. Thereby, I would elicit, hopefully, great customer satisfaction. I assumed that this would give me an advantage in the market and allow me to deliver quality service and really make a difference. Look, although this was a great idea, it just didn't work out. First of all, this great plan didn't put me on a scale necessary to build a business with a wide enough reach to get me enough attention. And I fell way short of domination, not to mention way short on the cash flow necessary to continue to support the clients. Just as important, it didn't allow me to share my information with enough of the successful people. When I finally got my thinking to the right levels, got off this customer satisfaction binge, and committed to expanding my footprint and taking on 10 times more clients, what I did was I multiplied my exposure tenfold and increased the number of successful people and companies I had previously been avoiding. I shifted my focus to monumental quantities instead of just serving a handful which enhanced my ability to spread the word about myself, my company, my products, and my ideas to a growing number of people. The grumbles I received did intensify right along with the compliments I received. In fact, I enjoyed more successes than I suffered failures because finally I was exposed to greater numbers of people using my materials. 
augmenting the number of attendees at my seminars and workshops actually amplified the number of quality players and clients that I was exposed to and expanded the number of individuals who were then using my ideas and techniques. More people were talking now about my methodologies among their associates who would then spread the word to people they knew and so on. The more people talked about me, the more I was able to expand my footprint to get more attention, acquire more customers, and then create more customer satisfaction. Think about it like this. Would Facebook or Google be better off if they provided their service to only a few people? If they would, I wouldn't even be using them as examples. The practice of customer satisfaction is not limited to how you treat a customer after you acquire them. It should focus on what you do to attain them in the first place. The quality of the client you attain will have a direct effect on the level of customer satisfaction that you can deliver. I'm going to say that again. The quality of the client you attain will have a direct effect on the quality of the level of customer satisfaction experienced. You will not get to quality without seeking quantity. Remember, as well, what we have discussed in the previous chapters, okay? Criticism and complaints are an inevitable indications that you're growing as you should be. Disregard the criticism as a bad thing. Welcome and handle complaints. And do everything you can, everything you can to expand your footprint. The more people you serve, the better your chances are of interacting with quality customers. To be clear, you certainly want to deliver and exceed on the promises you make. Certainly, you want great customer satisfaction. However, look, if you're focused on delivering exceptional 10x service prior to acquisition, if you already know you deliver great service and a great product, this part becomes natural after acquisition. Acquire your client. I'm assuming you have a great product, a great idea, a great service, a great investment opportunity. Now you need to increase your support base for that idea. There are, regrettably, thousands of organizations in existence that sell inferior products every day. Although I'm certainly not suggesting that you push substandard offerings or sacrifice your product's quality, I'm trying to highlight an unfortunate reality. Domination of market share trumps all other things. Companies that sell products make acquisition their number one goal. And they better, they better handle any problems with their products or offerings after they get their users on board or they will cease to exist. No organization in the world has created massive success while limiting the acquisition of new clients. Apple learned this lesson the hard way for too long. It got killed by Microsoft for decades, a company any Apple user will claim sold an inferior product because while Microsoft made its merchandise available to the masses, Apple focused on just a small number of people. Notice the shift that Apple has made in the past few years, making its products appealing to the masses. In one year, 3% of all the households in America had an iPad, and 63% are using MP3 players, of which Apple has 45% of that market share. Apple is clearly adopting massive action in a big way these days with the goal of dominating with its footprint. Remember, even if your product and company deliver perfectly, you're going to get complaints from customers because they're human. You can't keep everyone happy all the time. It's impossible. It's a mistake to be scared of complaints. Instead, encourage them, look for them, find them, and then resolve them. Complaints are your customer's very direct way of telling you exactly how to make your product better. If you approach every situation wrought with anxiety about offending a client, 
then you will never attain dominance in the marketplace. Let's go back to Apple as an example. This company doesn't worry today about customer satisfaction so much that it neglects to continue building products that people are willing to stand in line to get. It recognizes the proper order of objectives. Number one, acquire customers via an amazing product or service that you've worked on at 10x levels to create. Two, impress them with how great you are during that acquisition process. And three, establish customer loyalty through repeat purchases, support, word-of-mouth marketing, etc. When you're building a business, your primary target is not customer satisfaction. It's acquisition, referral, loyalty, insistence, and then more acquisition using the customers you've attained. I want everyone to have my products, not just some. I want masses of people, not just a few, to know about me and my products. I personally will not be satisfied until 6 billion people know what I do. I want everyone to purchase from me over and over, and I want to be on their minds so regularly and make such an impact on them and their companies that they can never even think about using someone else. This line of thinking differs from concentrating so intensely on customer satisfaction that members of the sales team then worry too much about upsetting or pressuring or pressing hard for fear that if they do so, they'll damage their client's opinion of the company. I know sales teams that are penalized when they receive customer complaints, which seems odd to me for several reasons. For one, it suggests that these grievances could have been avoided, which they clearly cannot be. Even if you could avoid them, why would you want to? Complaints and problems are opportunities to do more business and solve more issues and to communicate and to give your customer the chance to spread the word about how great you are at making problems go away. If you truly want to find out what your organization's customer acquisition and loyalty weaknesses are, if you really want to find out the truth, then survey the people who did not acquire your product. The sooner you can ask them questions, the better, ideally, as they leave or refuse your business. And be sure to ask them about the process, not about the people they've encountered. You might ask questions like the following. How long were you here? Did you meet a manager? Were you shown optional products? Were you presented with a proposal? Did anyone offer to bring the product to your home or office? Feel free to call my office for guidance on how to develop this, what we call an exit survey for non-buyers, so that we can create something for your unique situation, 800-368-5771. We can help you identify what you want to ask in your exit survey to pinpoint where the breakdown is taking place. When was the last time you were asked to give a company that you decided not to purchase from your feedback on the experience? Did the salespeople give you enough attention? Did they stay with you through your decision-making process? Did they meet you enthusiastically? Did they offer to solve your problem? Did they have someone from management say hello? Did they show you various options or even present their product or proposal? And did anyone call you back? I bet the answer to most of these questions is no. Companies fail, not because they offend customers, but because they don't take enough action to make them customers in the first place. And I assure you that these very same companies hold one meeting after another on improving customer satisfaction. They will survey those that buy from them instead of taking the time to ask those who didn't buy why they didn't buy. Add to this fact that most of these surveys focus on what the sales associate did wrong rather than on what is inadequate about the organization's thinking and processes. Remember, 
The operative order of performance, customer acquisition is the primary target, followed by customer satisfaction, then customer loyalty, followed by customers who spread the word about you. This order allows a company to continue to invest in product development and improvement, enhance processes, and increase promotion, which ultimately creates real customer satisfaction. Exercise. Have you ever been surveyed by a company that you didn't buy from as you left? Two, what is more important than customer satisfaction? There's two answers. Why do most businesses fail? What might be some survey questions you could use when you don't acquire a customer? Chapter 20, Omnipresence. The word omnipresence conveys the concept of being everywhere, in all places, at all times, all at the same time. Can you imagine what it would be like if you, your brand, and your company could be everywhere all the time and how much power this would give you? Although it may seem impossible, this should be your goal. The things that are assigned the most value on this planet are believed to be available everywhere. It is impossible to amass true success without thinking in terms of making your ideas, products, services, or brand universal. The things upon which people depend most are omnipresent. From the oxygen you breathe, to the water you drink, to the fuel you burn in your car, to the electricity that runs through your home, to the most impressively branded products on earth. What these items have in common is that they're accessible everywhere. You see them constantly, depend on them, and have become used to needing them in most cases on a daily basis. Consider something as seemingly obvious as the news. TV channels, newspapers, radio, and the internet deliver the news 24-7, and that's usually what's on people's minds most frequently. We see it when we wake up, we talk about it at the water cooler, we hear about it throughout the day, and we watch it on television before we go to sleep. This is the kind of mindset from which you must operate to make yourself available like the news everywhere. You want people to see you so often that they think of you constantly and instantaneously identify your face or name or logo with not just the offering you represent, but even the offering made by those similar to you. Many people incorrectly assume that they can make a handful of phone calls, a personal visit or two, send out a few emails, and somehow will command people's attention. But the truth is that none of these actions will cause people to think about you enough or often enough to have a considerable effect. Are you operating at the right level of targeting and thinking big enough? If you're not already, you need to expand your approach and enlarge your footprint with the goal of dominating and being omnipresent everywhere all at the same time. My goal these days is to get more than 6 billion people to hear my name constantly, know it when they hear it, and then when they think sales training, they think of me. Although this may seem unrealistic, probably unattainable, it is the right target, thinking, footprint, and concept for my business to be everywhere. The mere commitment to do something this big will be an adventure in and of itself. Even before I'm able to fully attain this goal, I will achieve some greater level of success than I have now in the attempt. Will money come as a result? Absolutely. Will people buy my products? For sure. Will I create success for my ideas and get support for whatever I am trying to accomplish? Guaranteed. 
This mindset will then allow for us, my company, myself, to make all our decisions with the goal of moving me in the direction of getting everyone on the planet to know me, my products, my company, and my efforts. Every decision that we make at my company is now based on this one mission, introduce the entire planet to Grant Cardone. Although our targets have to be funded, money is not our primary interest. We know profits will come as a result of our efforts to be everywhere at the same time. We don't ask what a project will cost now or whether it fits in the budget or if we have time to do something. We ask, does it help us accomplish the mission of omnipresence? We don't stop to figure out whether I want to travel or whether I want to do the speaking gig, whether I want to talk to a smaller group or a larger group, or even what the outcome may be. We simply do not allow any excuses and distractions that could limit the expansion into omnipresence. In the same way, any attempt you make to have yourself, your brand, your product, or your service be omnipresent will automatically guide your actions and decisions. Is this kind of thinking too big? For most people, it is. Is it absolutely necessary? Well, not if you're willing to settle for average. However, if you're considering average, go back and reread the chapter on why average goals are certain to fail you and why normal does not work. Show me one great company that has not accomplished omnipresence. Coca-Cola, McDonald's, Google, Starbucks, Philip Morris, AT&T, Lazy Boy, Bank of America, Walt Disney, Fox TV, Apple, Ernst Young, Ford Motor Company, Visa, American Express, Macy's, Walmart, Best Buy. These names are everywhere. Each of these companies are in every city, some on many multiple street corners, and most available around the world. You see their ads, you know what their logos look like, you can even hum some of their jingles, and you use their names to describe not just their products, but in some cases, even their competitors' products as well. There are also individuals who have accomplished this thing called omnipresence so well that the world immediately recognizes their names. Oprah, Bill Gates, Warren Buffett, George Bush, Barack Obama, Abe Lincoln, Elvis, The Beatles, Led Zeppelin, Walt Disney, Will Smith, Mother Teresa, Muhammad Ali, Michael Jackson, Michael Jordan, and hey, I could go on and on. Whether you like them or not, each of these people has created such a name for him or herself that most people now know who they are, or at the very least, they recognize their name and align it with something of importance. The way in which they now manage and control their brands will determine their long-term success and survivability. My father always gave me the following valuable advice. Son, your name is your most important asset. People can take anything and everything away from you, but they can't take away your name. Now, although I agree with my dad's emphasis on the importance of name and respect, it, of course, becomes less important if no one knows your name. Unless people know who you are, no one will pay attention to what you represent. You have to get people to know you, which means you have to get attention. The more attention you get, the more places you will be, the more people you are with, the more you can be everywhere. And all of this will improve your chances of using your good name to do good work. Have you ever heard the saying, it's enough if you can just help one person? Although it's surely a good thing to help one person and certainly better than helping no one, I personally don't really believe helping just one person is enough. I know it sounds good and that this saying emphasizes the importance of helping others. But look, there's 6.8 billion people on planet Earth, and most of them need some help. Your goal must and can be bigger than just one person and should be. And in order for this to happen, people must know who you are, 
and what you represent. Otherwise, you will not, regardless of your product or your service, your idea or whatever you have, you can't even make a dent in the people that need help. You must think in terms of being everywhere, all at the same time, omnipresent. This is the kind of 10x mindset necessary to dominate your sector. If you commit to taking 10x actions consistently, followed up with more 10x actions, then I assure you that you will be propelled into situations where you will find yourself everywhere, all at the same time. The first thing you have to do is burst through obscurity and let the world know what you can do for it. And then you must do that relentlessly. Although it might sound like a grind, it will only be a chore if your goals are too small, if they're too self-serving, and when they're unattained. I promise, it won't feel like a grind when you come out on top. You might want to get rich, but why? What do you want to use the money for? Do you have a higher purpose? Is there something higher that you're looking to serve? After all, you can only accumulate so much personal wealth before it doesn't really matter anymore. Maybe you want to amass riches in order to help more people and improve conditions for all mankind. Now, that would require you to be omnipresent everywhere, all the time, all at the same time. The higher your purpose, the more fuel it will provide for your 10x actions. This is what it takes in order to rocket to omnipresence. People of fame and influence achieve the status because they are compelled to fulfill their purpose by writing books, doing interviews, blogging, writing articles, accepting speaking engagements, and saying yes constantly to get the attention for themselves, their companies, and their projects. These are the results of thinking big. This isn't a grind. This is a passion. It's only a grind when your mindset and actions are too small and will not create enough of a payoff for you and your company. You're capable. You know you're capable of much more than you're doing now. Once you match your mindset with the right purpose and the right actions, you will start taking the necessary 10x actions and find yourself simultaneously propelled into more places than you ever thought was possible. In order for your life not to feel like work or like you're running on a hamster wheel, you must think in terms of the right volumes, omnipresence, the goal of being everywhere at all times and then at the same time is exactly the kind of massive thinking that is missing for most people's expectations of themselves and their dreams. You first must make a vow to have your brand, idea, concept, company, product, service have a footprint on this planet. To do so, you have to get involved with your community, school system, neighborhood, politics, and everything. You have to attend and be seen at events right in the local paper and get connected to the players in your community. Once involved, you must then do everything possible to stay active. Have people see you, read about you, hear from you, and think about you. Say yes to every opportunity to get your word out and make yourself known. Write about your project. Talk about it. Give lectures on it. Even bark on the street corners if you have to. Commit to omnipresence. I didn't learn this incredibly important lesson myself until I was under a major attack by people who didn't want to see me doing well. And I had to figure out how to counter their negative attack on me. My gut reaction was to retaliate immediately by way of inflicting physical harm, which I felt in a fleeting moment of insanity. However, my wife reminded me of my own saying, the best revenge is massive success. She advised me to move forward with such great momentum and so much of a presence that every time these people woke up, turned the TV on, or made a business move, they would have to see my face, hear my voice, and be reminded of how well I was doing. Hearing the truth from my 
sane and positive wife immediately put me at ease and made it clear to me that the best payback was not force of any kind, but simply amassing more success. Rather than spending energy on retaliating, I spent all my energy, resources, and creativity on becoming omnipresent and expanding my footprint. This is a much better investment in energy than chasing someone else down. Consider how you can use this illustration to figure out how you can be in more places at the same time. Immediately after the attack, I got busy putting all my resources into being seen everywhere all at the same time, omnipresent. I wrote my first book, followed it up with another one three months later, then finished my third book, and the members of my group were so excited they spent months doing everything possible to make it a New York Times bestseller by the way it did. The goal was to do everything we could to get my information and material disseminated. We started using YouTube and Flickr to provide motivational videos, sales tips, and business strategies to our clients and asked people to pass them on to their friends to meet new people. I personally recorded more than 200 videos, wrote over 150 blogs and articles, did somewhere south of 700 radio interviews in just a year and a half. I then began getting national TV exposure with the networks and cable TV, Fox, CNBC, MSNBC, CNN, Wall Street Journal Radio, and more all started having me on their shows. In the same period of time, I personally wrote more than 2,000 posts on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. All of this was in addition to what my office was diligently doing to get my name out. My face, name, voice, articles, methodologies, and videos began showing up everywhere, many at the same time. People with whom I had never done business started saying to us, I see your name everywhere. Everywhere I go, I hear about Grant Cardone. I was completely focused on expanding my footprint and making myself known to the rest of the world rather than worrying about a small group of critics or criminals. My business blew up on every front. Opportunities started to flow in daily. We started getting attention, not just from those we had focused on, but from people all over the world. As a result of this campaign, my books are being translated into Chinese and German as we speak. Now inquiries are starting to come from France and Mexico, South Africa, and other countries are flowing in with interest for our sales training programs, audio programs, and our books. We have people calling us from both here in the United States and overseas who are interested in TV programs and me doing magazine articles. Now, look, I'm not bragging here, but I'm showing you what can happen, what will happen for you when you take the right action at the right levels and start thinking in the right sizes. Omnipresence should be your goal. All powerful companies, ideas, products, and people are omnipresent. They can be found everywhere. They dominate their sectors. They become synonymous with that which they represent. Real success is measured by longevity. So if you want to get excited and passionate for the long haul, then make omnipresent your constant goal. Your name, brand, and reputation are your most valuable assets only if enough people know them and use them. And remember, the best way to even the score against those who have it in for you is to make yourself so well known that every time they look up, each morning when they wake up, or right before they go to sleep at night, they see evidence of you in the marketplace and your success. Exercise. What does it mean to be omnipresent? What steps do you need to take to become omnipresent? What is the upside of taking so much action that the marketplace now makes your name synonymous with what it is you represent? What is the best way to get revenge against your critics? Chapter 21, Excuses. 
This is about the time we should look at the excuses you're likely going to use to avoid making any of this happen. Everyone uses excuses. Most people actually have favorites that they employ over and over. I'm certain that yours are starting to emerge by now. So rather than ignore them, let's just go ahead and confront the little monsters so that they don't distract you later. An excuse, by definition, is a justification for not doing or doing or not doing something. I think the dictionary implies that an excuse is a reason. However, in reality, an excuse usually turns out to be something other than the real reason that motivated your actions or lack of actions in the first place. For example, let's say that your excuse for being late to work is due to traffic. Well, that's not truly the reason you didn't make it to work on time. The reason you were late is because you left your home without enough time to allow for the traffic. See, excuses are never the reason for why you did or didn't do something. They're just a revision of the facts that you make up in order to help yourself feel better about what you did or didn't do. Making excuses will not change your situation. Only getting to the real reason behind the excuse can actually do this. Excuses are for people who refuse to take responsibility for their life and how their life is turning out. Slaves and victims make excuses and will forever be destined to have leftovers and other scraps. The first thing to know about excuses is that they never improve your situation. The second thing to know is which ones you use on a regular basis. Do any of the following sound familiar to you? I don't have the money. I have kids. I don't have kids. I am married. I'm not married. I have to find balance in my life. I'm overworked. I'm underworked. Too many people work here. We don't have enough people. My manager sucks. My manager doesn't help me. My manager won't leave me alone. My manager's negative. My manager's too jacked up. I don't like reading. I don't have time to study. I don't have time for anything. Our prices are too high. Our prices are too low. The customer won't call me back. The customer canceled the appointment. People don't tell me the truth. They don't have the money. The economy's bad. The banks aren't lending. My owner's cheap. We don't have. Can't find the right people. No one's motivated. People have bad attitudes. No one told me. It was someone else's fault. They keep changing their minds. I'm tired. I need a vacation. The people I work with are losers. I'm depressed. I'm sick. My mom's sick. Traffic's terrible. The competition's giving its products away. I have such bad luck. Did you board yet? Look, I know I am. I, I, I can't even do the list anymore. I had to really reach deep in the recesses of my mind just to come up with some of those. How many of these have you used? Look, go back and circle every statement. Go back and look at the excuses you've used that you hear coming out of your mouth every day. Now ask yourself, will any of the excuses that you're using ever improve your condition? I doubt it. So why then do so many people make these excuses so often? Does it even matter? Look, an excuse is just an alteration of reality. Nothing about it will move you to a better situation. I'm going to say that again. An excuse is an alteration of reality. Nothing about an excuse can in any way improve your situation. The fact that the customer doesn't have the money will not help you close the deal. The fact that you only have bad luck is not going to improve the condition of your life or change your luck. In fact, if you keep telling yourself that you have bad luck long enough, I, I promise you, you're going to start to expect bad luck and actually do the things that will bring you bad luck, thereby ensuring that things will continue to be bad for you. You have to start understanding the difference between making excuses and providing actual sound reasons for events. This book focuses on many differences between the successful and the unsuccessful. And a very distinct dissimilarity is that successful people simply do not make excuses. 
they are actually quite unreasonable when it comes to providing reasons, at least for failure as well. No, I'll never ask myself or anyone else, for that matter, why I was unable to bring my product to the market or to raise enough money or make enough sales. Because as far as I'm concerned, no answer will do for me. There are no justifications that will change the facts or the situations and any reasons I might provide myself, excuses, or only opportunities I have yet to handle. Any rationale that you give yourself just gives someone else the chance to find a solution. Remember what I said time and again throughout this book. Nothing happens to you, man. It happens because of you. Excuses are just another component of this and a major difference between whether you will succeed or not. If you make success an option, then it won't be an option for you. Simple. No excuse exists that can or will make you successful. Engaging in self-pity and excuse-making are signs that someone has an extremely minimal degree of responsibility. He didn't buy from me because the bank wouldn't make the loan. No, he didn't buy from you because you were unable to secure proper financing for your client. The first statement assumes no responsibility for the event, while the other does and identifies a solution. Get the guy some money. Once you adopt a more advanced sense of responsibility and refuse to make any more excuses, then you can go out and search for a solution. And as an added bonus, you will avoid such situations in the future. The quality of being rare is what makes something valuable. Anything that is plentiful has very little worth. Excuses are one item that people seem to have an almost endless supply of. Because they are so plentiful, they have no value. Because they do not move your desire to create more success for yourself, they are worthless uses of your energy. If you're going to approach success, as you've been taught throughout this book, not as an option, but as your duty, obligation, and responsibility, then you must commit to never using excuses for anything. You cannot allow yourself, your team, your family, or anyone in your organization to use another excuse as a reason why something didn't come to fruition. As the old saying goes, if it is to be, it's up to me. Exercise. What is the difference between an excuse and a reason? What are the two things you know about all excuses? What excuses have you been using? Chapter 22, Successful or Unsuccessful? I've been studying successful people most of my life and have found the differences between them and the people who accomplish less worth noting. And it's not what you might expect. The distinction between these two groups has, by the way, nothing to do with economics, education, or demographics. Although these experiences and events certainly influence them and their viewpoints, they're not ultimately the determining factor of the success they create in their lives. I can show you people with no education who were reared by broken families and terrible surroundings, but still managed to grow their successes to stratospheric levels. Successful people talk, think, and approach situations, challenges, and problems differently than most people, and they definitely think about money differently. Listed in this chapter, the commonly found qualities, personality traits, and habits that make successful people the way they are. Each item is followed by a few of my thoughts on what each category means. This will allow you to become aware of the kinds of habits and characteristics you should be developing and encouraging your employees and colleagues to develop as well. 
The only way to be successful is to take the same actions that other successful people have taken. Success is no different than any other skill. Duplicate the actions and mindsets of other successful people, and you will create success for yourself. The following list of ways you should act in order to be successful is based on what I have discovered about successful people and the way they do things. Number one, have a can-do attitude. People with a can-do attitude approach every situation with the outlook that no matter what, it can be done. They consistently use phrases like, we can do it, let's make it happen, let's work it out, and they always maintain that a solution exists. These people talk in terms of explanations and resolving issues and consistently communicate challenges with a positive outlook. They respond to even the most daunting or seemingly impossible situation in a can-do manner. This attitude is more valuable than a superior product and a lower price and is one of the only ways you'll be able to accomplish 10x massive actions. If you're not willing to approach everything with the attitude that it can be done, then you won't truly be thinking in 10x. You must believe and convey to others that a solution does indeed exist, even if you're going to have to work a little harder to find it. Incorporate this kind of can-do outlook into your language, thoughts, actions, and responses to everyone you know. Help your entire company develop this kind of attitude by drilling it into them on a daily basis. Take even the most impossible request and figure out how you can answer with a can-do attitude. Get yourself and your colleagues to the point where responses like can-do, no problem, we'll handle it, become the norm and nothing else. Number two, believe that, I will figure it out. This outlook goes hand-in-hand -hand with can-do attitude. Again, it refers to the individual who's looking to be responsible and solve a problem. Even if you're not sure how to do something, the best answer is I'll figure it out, not I don't know. No one values a person who not only doesn't have the information, but doesn't want to know the information. This response, I don't know, does nothing for your credibility or your competence. I don't agree with the fact or the claim that you should tell people when you don't know something. How does that help the situation? Come on, do you really want to brag about your inability or think that the marketplace or your customers value honesty so much that they'd want you to admit that you're actually wasting their time with your incompetence? You can admit that you're unfamiliar with something as long as you immediately follow that admission up with a promise that you will figure it out or find someone who will. Throwing up your hands at a task will not move things forward. Communicate to yourself and others, and first yourself that you are willing to do whatever is necessary to figure it out. An alternative response to, I don't know, is, great question, let me check into it, I'll figure it out. See, you're still being honest, but you're inciting a solution instead of implying ineptitude. Three, successful people focus on opportunity. Successful people see all situations, even problems and complaints, as opportunities. Where others see difficulty... Successful people know that problems solve equal new productivity, new products, new services, new customers, and probably a financial windfall. Remember, success is overcoming a challenge. Therefore, you can't succeed without some kind of difficulty. It doesn't really matter what the challenge is. As long as you handle it adequately, you'll be rewarded. And the bigger the problem is, the bigger the opportunity is. Whether a problem exists for the entire market and all the people in it, becomes an equalizer. The only person who stands out in the opportunity or in the market is the focused individual who sees problems as openings and opportunities to create more success. Successful people are able to use the issue at hand to separate themselves and dominate their market. 
There are countless situations that most people tend to see as setbacks and nothing else. Recessions, unemployment, housing predicaments, conflict, customer complaints, company shutdown, just to name a few. If you can learn to see these as prospects instead of problems, you'll continually come out on top. Number four, successful people love challenges. Whereas many people loathe challenges and use them as reasons to sink further into indifference, highly successful individuals are compelled and invigorated by challenges. The idea of being overwhelmed, I believe, is the result of never taking enough action to generate enough winning. Success begets more success, and losses increase your chances of more losses. Challenges are the experiences that sharpen successful people's abilities. To achieve your goals, you have to get to a place where every challenge becomes fuel for you. Life can be quite brutal, and people can incur a fair amount of losses over time. Many get to the point where every new challenge they face automatically equals a loss in their own mind. There are ways to rehabilitate yourself, however, so that the hardships you've experienced through your life no longer rob you of a chance to approach new challenges with gusto and excitement. When you're able to develop a more positive outlook, you begin to see a challenge as a stimulation to engage rather than an excuse to avoid something. So you have to re-educate yourself on the notion of this thing called a challenge and know that every challenge now provides an opportunity to win. And don't kid yourself, winning in life is vital. Every minute of every day, your mind is automatically keeping a running tab on your wins, losses, and ties, and is doing so based on what you know to be your full potential. Look, the more you win in life, the higher your potential will be, and the more you will grow to love challenges. Five, successful people seek to solve problems. Successful individuals love to seek out problems because they know that almost every problem is universal in some way or another. Some industries actually create problems so that they can solve them by way of selling you their products. Think of all the things you purchased over the years because you needed them. Did you really need them? Or were you convinced that they would solve some problem you may or may not have had? Flu shots are a great example. Many people think they're necessary, but medical opinion is divided on this matter. Problems for the successful are like a meal to the hungry. Give me a problem, any problem. And when I solve it, I'll be rewarded, and I may become a hero. The bigger the problems, the more people who benefit from the solution, and the more powerful your success will be. You get yourself on the successful list by seeking problems out for your company, your employees, your customers, the government, whatever they may be and wherever they might exist. The world is filled with people who have problems and who unfortunately cause problems. One of the fastest and best ways to separate yourself from the masses is to establish yourself as someone who makes situations better, not worse, who solves problems, doesn't create them. Number six, successful people persist until successful. The ability to persist on a given path regardless of setbacks, unexpected events, bad news, and resistance to continue steadfastly or firmly in some state, purpose, or course of action in spite of condition is a trait to those who make the list. I assure you that I, at least, am more persistent than I am talented. This isn't a trait that people do or do not have. It's something that can and must be developed. Children seem to display this quality innately until they come to see via socialization, parenting, or a combination of both that it's not how most people act. However, this quality of persistence is necessary to make any dream a reality. Whether you are a salesperson or a state person, 
employer or employee. You will have to learn how to persist through all types of situations. It is as though this planet has some kind of force or natural tendency, almost like gravity, that challenges people's ability to persist. It's almost like the universe is just trying to find out what you're made of as it continues to confront you over and over. I know that any endeavor I tackle will require for me to persist with 10x actions until all resistance morphs into my support. I don't try to eliminate resistance. I merely keep going until the course changes and my ideas are maintained instead of defied. For example, I had a heckler on Facebook whose support I tried to gain but could not. Rather than deleting the person, I asked my followers on Facebook what they thought of the situation and let them bury this guy and further support me. If something doesn't end up supporting me, I simply persist with so much success that any remaining resistance will cease to exist. Persistence is a great advantage to anyone who wants to multiply his or her success because most other people have given up on this innate ability to persist. When you retrain yourself to do whatever is necessary to ensure that you're in the best mental, emotional, and financial position to persevere, you will find yourself on the list of not just the most persistent, but the most successful. 7. Take risk. Once when I was in Vegas, a man sitting next to me said, these casinos will always make money because the people that play here are never willing to take risk at levels great enough to wipe them out. I'm not suggesting that you go out and try to take a casino down. However, the man's observations reminded me of how many of us are taught to play it safe, to be conservative, and never really go for it in a big way. Look, life is not a great deal different than Vegas. You're going to have to put something on the line to get a return. At some point, you will have to take a risk, and the successful are willing to take risk. In the truly big casinos of life and business, come on, do you really take enough risk to create the success you want and need? Most people never go far enough in getting recognized, gaining attention, or even making a big splash. See, they're trying to protect or conserve a reputation, a position, or some already achieved state. They're trying to protect their hand. The successful are willing to take gambles to put it all out there and know, regardless of the outcome, that they can go back and they can do it again. They allow themselves to be criticized, to looked at, seen by the world, while the unsuccessful hold back and play it safe. Remember the old saying, nothing ventured, nothing gained. At this time, it's vital that you get your family and friends to be supportive of you taking risk and in no longer playing it safe in your life and in your career. 8. Be unreasonable. No, that's not an error. It does say unreasonable. In my book, Sell to Survive, I introduced the notion that successful salespeople must be unreasonable with his or her client in order to consummate a sale. This clearly flies in the face of what most of us are taught, that is, to be reasonable and logical. Being unreasonable requires that you act without rational consideration and not in accordance with realities. And yes, that's what I want you to do. When most people see this definition, they get confused and think that I'm telling them to be crazy. But look, successful people recognize how vital it is to act without reason. They know they cannot afford to act in accordance with the agreed-upon realities. If they do, successful people, if they do, the supposed impossible can never become possible for them. Being a 10Xer requires thinking and acting unreasonably. Otherwise, you'll end up the same way everyone else does, forced to survive on successful people's leftovers. Unreasonable doesn't mean being mentally unstable 
And let's face it, who isn't just a little off the rocker, but that you refuse to any longer validate the alleged sanity of reasonable actions that will never get you what you want anyway. Most of the world is playing in accordance with some set of stupid, useless, reasonable rules that only ensure that they will continue trudging along in bondage as a mere slave. Think about it. Would we have cars, airplanes, space travel, telephones, the internet, in addition to the thousand other things we take for granted every day, if someone hadn't done something that another person had labeled unreasonable? Man would do nothing exceptional if it were not for the willingness to be unreasonable. So be one of the unreasonable ones. They are usually the people who make a huge difference in our world and make the successful list. Number nine, be dangerous. Since you were a child, someone has been trying to keep you from danger. Be careful is the mantra that parents repeat to their children while buying products from entire industries that they have created just to safe-proof a home in order to protect a child. Unfortunately, many people get to the point where they're so intent upon avoiding danger that they cease to truly even live their life. If you look back over your life, you'll probably see that you have done yourself just as much or even more harm being careful than by being dangerous. Think about it. When was the last time you even got hurt? You were probably trying to protect something at that time before it even happened. Being careful requires you to take actions cautiously, and there's no way that you will ever hit 10x activity levels or 10x goals by being cautious. Massive action demands that you throw caution to the wind, even if it puts you in the path of danger. Working with powerful people is dangerous in and of itself. Do you want to get investment dollars from a billionaire? A salary that pays you a million bucks a year? You want to take your company public? If so, you'll have to be willing to be dangerous because more will be expected of you when you go to work for a millionaire or get a million dollar salary or start to raise money from billionaires or when you go public. To do something big, you have to embrace danger. The way to ensure that danger doesn't kill you is to be sufficiently trained so that you can get into the ring and come out the victor. 10. Create Wealth Attitude towards wealth and the creation of wealth is an especially significant distinction between financially successful and the unsuccessful. Poor people believe they need to work in order to make money and then spend their lives either spending it on nothing, their money on nothing of importance, or they spend their lives conserving the money like crazy in order to protect the money. The very successful know that money is already created. They think in terms of generating wealth through the exchange of new ideas, products, services, and solutions. They don't think in terms of making money. The very successful realize they're not bound by shortages. They know that money exists in abundance and flows to those who create products, services, and solutions, and that wealth is not limited to a monetary supply. The very successful know that the closer they are to massive flows of money, the better chance they have of creating wealth for themselves and their families. Think in terms of creating money and wealth, not salaries and conservation of funds. Figure out how to create wealth through the exchange of great ideas, quality service, and effective problem solving. Look, for example, how powerful banks behave. They collect currency through methods that compel other people to either give them money or borrow money from them. Consider the way in which wealthy people own real estate that others pay for by the way of rent. See, they produce money solely by owning the property and therefore create wealth for themselves. People who invest in their own companies do so in order to increase their wealth, not their incomes. 
The unsuccessful, on the other hand, spend money on things that affluent individuals use to create wealth. Income is taxed. Wealth is not. Remember, you don't need to make money. It's already been made. There's no shortages of actual money, only shortages of people creating wealth and truly a shortage of people going for the real payday. Move your attention from conserving money to creating wealth, and you'll be thinking as successful people do. 11. Readily take action. This is entirely what this book is about. I hope that much is clear by now. The highly successful take unbelievable amounts of action, regardless of what that action looks like. These people rarely do nothing, even when they're on vacation. Just ask their spouses or family members. Whether it is by the way of getting others to take action for them, getting attention for their products or ideas, or just grinding it out day and night, the successful have been consistently taking high levels of action before anyone ever heard their names. The unsuccessful talk about a plan of action but never quite get around to doing what they claim they're going to do, at least enough of it to ever get them where they want. Successful people assume that their future achievements rely on investing in actions that may or may not pay off today, but that when taken consistently and persistently over time will sooner or later bear fruit. Massive action is the one thing I know I can depend on for myself when times are tough. Your ability to take action will be a major factor in determining your potential success. And it is discipline. It is a discipline that you should spend time on daily. It is not a gift. Taking action is not a gift or a trait that I was lucky enough to receive or inherit. It's a habit, a muscle that must be developed. Laziness and a lack of action are ethical issues for me. I don't think it's right or acceptable for me to be lazy. It's not a character flaw that's caused by some invented disease any more than a highly active person is somehow blessed. No one is born to sprint or run a marathon any more than some people are born to take more action than others. Action is necessary in order to create success and can be the single defining quality that will enable you to make the list of successful people. No matter who you are or what you've done in life so far, you can develop this